Hello and welcome to The Work of Art, a series of conversations that challenge the accepted idea of how and why artists build a career. In the UK, the median income that an artist makes for their work is less than £10,000 each year, yet thousands manage to live and work in Europe's most expensive city while sustaining a career and often raising a family too. But no two artists are the same. Their ideas of success differ widely, with art being made for public or commercial galleries, in communities, on commission, via residencies and in a myriad of other ways. What helps and hinders them is often highly personal, coloured by circumstance and motivation, but what joins them is an ongoing critical dialogue with their peers and audiences. Throughout this series, I'll be talking to six artists about the decisions they make to balance the competing demands on their time and try to find out what artists really do all day. My name is Russell Martin and I'm an artist as well as the programme manager for ArtQuest and today I'm talking with Emma Smith. Emma, hello. Hi. Thank you very much for having me here in your really unbelievably amazing studio in uh, Wising uh, Art Centre just outside Cambridge. So maybe we should start with how you came to be here <laughs> in this incredible studio. So I have moved to Wising quite recently. I uh, took up my studio here in January. From London? You were From in London, London. So yeah, for the last five years I've been at the Acme Fire Station in London in Bow. And really that move was led by having been in the, in the fire station previously. So the fire station residency is a five-year programme, which is a fantastic amount of time for artists to be given a space. And we paid rent there, but the idea was that it's subsidised so that it gives you time to not be too massively concerned about earning money that you can get on and focus on your work. That said, it's still quite a lot of money. It's just not so crazy for London. Right. Um, and it was a live-work space? It was a live-work space, yes. There's 12 live-work spaces in the building. Um, and five years is a fantastic time because, I mean, there's lots of one-year residency programmes and you can work in such a way, actually, that you kind of can flip between residences, but five years actually allows you to, to not have to think about where you're going next when you arrive, which is really nice. And so it was... It, wor it really worked for me uh, when I moved there because at the time I was making a lot of live performance-based work, which I'm still doing, um, and so I didn't need necessarily large production space. I just needed a space that was comfortable, and, and before that I'd gone for many years in, I think, what are more kind of typical uh, for artists, spaces where you're freezing cold uh, for large chunks of the year and you kind of... Um, I'm sure many people have had this experience of sitting on a radiator uh, in your studio space, trying to kind of stay warm while you work. And so I was quite keen on the idea of having a live workspace in a space that was actually reasonably comfortable, but didn't actually need to be a big production space, because mostly I needed to kind of sit and plan through performances. So that really, really worked for me very well. And I think what I really also enjoyed being there was having a network of artists. And because of also being a live workspace, it meant people were there, I think, a bit more than if you're in a day studio. Um, so although everybody there, when I was there, we all worked fairly internationally and would kind of go off for different projects at different moments, you were coming home there. And so even for people who were doing different jobs and teaching for example that would be where you were in the evening so you did get to see people and there was a really great network there we all got on very well and spent time together and that was really 
nice. You felt like you had a sort of support network. And did that you. extend outside of that community that was living there as well? Like, was it a place that other artists would come to for, who weren't on that live-work space? Yes, in the sense of we each kind of had, obviously, friends that came round, but not so much in terms of a kind of any organised network. Um, it's not the nicest of places to get to, so <laughs> 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 people off, but... I mean, we, I used to organise some events when I was there, like, for a little while we had a sort of breakfast group, and that was uh, internal to the building, but we would get together um, occasionally and when we were sort of all able to, time-wise, and have a, a breakfast together, and we would split each session. Each session would have a focus on just one artist's work, and it wasn't to share your work as a whole, it was just to say, what is there a question or something that you're kind of trying to think through right now? that might be helpful to do that all together. And so we'd all then try and help with that question and think it through. And that was a really nice way of sharing, sharing work together and trying to be kind of more supportive in a slightly more coordinated way. But I really valued having those artists around me. And so when I was then looking for where next, when that residency was coming to an end, that was kind of a big priority for me to think, where, where is there a network of, of location where there's definitely artists around? And also you definitely needed a studio. You definitely felt the need for the studio, even though you didn't need it as a kind of production space for, like, objects production space necessarily. You yeah, still well, over the last couple of years, I've started making things, um, and it's all still very much focused around live work. So I think of them really as props. But one of the big sort of questions I had for myself in my practice was my work is very collaborative, it's very participatory social practice, and at the heart of that is a kind of ethics and interest in, t in terms of how people can get involved in in artwork and I realised that although uh, social practice has the ability to kind of open up thinking about art or being involved in art to many people, if you make performance it's extremely limiting because I have to usually generally be there in person and it's a limited time frame so actually that's really kind of narrows down the capacity for people uh, getting involved in that work, so I've been interested in thinking about performance objects and the and sort of instructions or games or things which people can activate themselves to create the work. So the work is non non durational. Then, so how do you produce non durational performance? Um, so over the last couple of years, I've started making stuff, and that might be anything from something quite small to a full building installation uh, in which something happens. So yeah, it's amazing how quickly then you start accumulating stuff and you'll see from in here there's like a whole an area of the space which is already kind of just, just, a lot of, just yeah, storage. A lot of storage, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been really important, I think, to have that space, but also I think, and maybe these things just alternate and you like it's nice in some ways just have a change, but I felt <clears throat> I was also ready to not be in a live workspace again. To separate um, it out a bit. Yeah, and I think, like, and, I, and that's something I've really enjoyed coming here is going home. Um, and that's something which it's it's really pleasurable when you don't have to go to work, as it were, and to kind of <clears throat> wake up, be in your pajamas, like make work all day. But there's something also quite unhealthy about it. I think, and like I would find, like I'd go to my front door at the fire station sometimes and realise it was locked in the afternoon, and realise that I hadn't opened it since the day before. <laughs> and then you kind of think, actually, I need to I need to get out. It's no, you know, you can't kind of. Uh, live constantly and work constantly in the same space and so yeah it's been nice to think about separating those spaces again but maintaining 
the the two things I wanted to maintain from that space was having a network of people around me and also being somewhere comfy and not going back to that kind of freezing garret setup. And so in in a part that was then part of the decision of leaving London and thinking where where can I afford for that to be the case. So it was it was there was definitely a cost imperative in there as well. I mean obviously in terms of community of artists there's loads and loads of artists in London mm. but you have also come to a place that very specifically has also has a lot of artists. Not as not thousands. I mean there's what, twelve artists at Wising or something? Yeah. But there is still a community, I suppose it's how big does the community have to be anyway before it's it's not useful anymore. Yeah. I mean I think the thing that I really valued with Wising, and this is just very particular to my experience um and sort of career path, um if that's what you call it. Uh, hideous term. <laughs> but um is that I've worked here for a long time so I know I know Wising as a site very well, and I know the people here very well. So I, I first worked with Wising in 2010, and so I know the staff really well. And that I find really helpful also in that it's really nice to have people who've seen your practice develop over a number of years and are very familiar with it. And so I find the curatorial relationship that I have with them really productive. And so the, both the curator and director here have known my work for a long time. And as part of having a studio here, you have some curatorial support as part of that offer. So um, I have a number of meetings with the curator just to kind of catch up on where I am and what I'm working on at the moment. And that's fantastic, especially given that context that she's known my work for years and years. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, very supportive. And And does that feel more or less or the same kind of valuable as having those conversations like you had at the fire studio with other artists? Does it feel, is it different? to have it with a curator instead of with a group of artists? I think there's different... It, it probably is different. Some, but some things are the same, but some things are certainly different. I'd say probably more with artists we have found recently anyway, that, and, and maybe that's to do with us all having gone through that phase together of deciding what next after the fire station. But a lot of conversations were around artist survival, money, where you're going to be able to live, what you're going to manage to do, rather than, this is what I'm working on, let's think about that, let's talk about ideas. But this is maybe also the difference in uh, those conversations being in that context of moving versus the curatorial conversations that's arriving and then being able to think, right, now I'm settled, what am I going to make? Well, also in terms of the amount, uh, you know, London is expensive and a lot of artists that I know in London talk about money a lot, probably more than is strictly healthy, because it's something that's really pressing all the time. I think in some ways, I think what's interesting is that between artists, I think for sure my experience is we talk about it a lot because it's tough and it's something that has massive implications on where you live, what you're doing, uh, family, all your kind of life decisions. And yet it's still really not talked about in a working context. And in terms of with when you go to a gallery or you have a project on or something? Yeah, about well, like if somebody invites you for a commission um, or a show, they want to talk to you first about the ideas. And it's seen as very kind of un-artist-like and kind of harsh to say, well, before we get anywhere near that, what's the salary what are we actually, you know, is this fe- feasible? Do I want this as a job? And and that's a conversation I think that's very hard to kind of open up as your initial port of contact. And so there's a kind of an expectation or an idea that everybody like, loves the art, wants to talk about that, wants to think through ideas and yeah, we'll kind of deal with, you know, this financial situation. 
later and because everybody knows it's probably not great I suppose but, but it, there's something missing I think in that openness to just be able to say it's a, it's a job mm. there's a salary what is it do you because you know, that's a crucial part of whether you can take something on actually and I think the more necessary it is that you definitely need that finance then you just have to have those conversations and in a way the easier it becomes even though you're having you it, it's because it's the harder that you're needing to have them mm-hmm. um, but certainly I've always been in a situation where I need to be earning money otherwise the reality is you can't pay your rent and you can't live and so therefore you just have to have those conversations yeah I mean you you, you had a bit of reticence earlier on to using the word career mm. as an artist what if that's not the word that you want to use but given that you do have to and do have these conversations about money and a job it's a job mm. you're a freelancer could you talk a little bit more about that about what that kind of division is or why you're resistant to the idea of it being a career but you're not resistant to it being a job with a salary yeah i mean i think i think basically the what it is and what you do is a very convoluted thing and and that makes it slightly hard to pin down sometimes so for example i work on the basis that art is something that i do um that I earn my money from, and so I work. I work full time as an artist. I don't do any other work to earn a living, and therefore it needs to be something that that pays my necessary costs to do that. Uh, and I'm con- and I work almost entirely through the public sector. Um, every piece of work that I make is commissioned by somebody under contract so I'll have a contract to make something and that will say what the budget is what the budget is for my fees what the budget is for production what the timelines are and what I've agreed to deliver on and when and so in that sense it's very much it's very much a job and it's very important that it is that on another level and the way it gets complicated is that there are occasions where I think in order to actually make what I want to make, I might need to put in a bit more time or I might need to put in a bit of my own money to get the particular piece of material or something that I want in order to make what I do. And if you're in many jobs, you wouldn't necessarily care enough or there wouldn't necessarily be the motivation there to think, oh, yes, well, you know, my company makes this, but and I'd really like us to do better, so I'm going to put my personal money in. You're only likely to do that if it's if you're self-employed, basically, and maybe that's the nature of it. It's about being self-employed and kind of personally invested in the thing that you're producing. And that, I think, is where it gets slightly kind of um, convoluted. But to me, I think it is important to make clear, really, actually, that it's still, it still is a job. It's just you've become a financial investor in that process. So if there are instances, and it's, it generally there aren't, generally I will make sure I'm working on projects where I'm working to budget and everything's covered and my time is costed as it should be um, and I'm quite kind of strict in that on the whole because we're all complicit in the systems that create poor labour um, labour rights and circumstance in the art world and so I think it's really important for artists actually not to not to take on free work and to input in but I'm, I'm aware under, that kind of under any circumstances well really. I think there's it's really tough it's really tough, be- and I, and I, so I can't kind of make judgments on anybody. 
Um, but I do think we are complicit in a system. And so for every job that is taken on for free, then you, you are actively supporting uh, a, a sector that will abuse um, abuse free labour. Yep. And so it's I think the same, it's the same as in internships, for example, yeah, as well. Exactly. As long as there's people willing to do free internships, then free internships will be around. Yeah, exactly. And so the, I think there needs to be kind of solidarity um, between artists in this regard. And I've been part of various groups that have worked to support artists' labour rights and fees. And actually, what was interesting in being part of groups supporting artists' pay. Uh, is actually a big part of that experience for me was just being part of networks where you could support each other in saying I'm in this situation, someone's saying to me this is the salary, I know that it doesn't come anywhere near covering time, what to do, blah, blah, blah. And then just having the confidence to say I'm not doing it. Um, you know, I'm, If you haven't got a budget, go away and find one and come back and we can have a conversation when there is one. And, I, and I've said that several times um, in different instances and as a result of being quite firm on not taking unpaid work, I've never lost any work and I think that's always the fear for artists. Yeah, there is always a fear that if you, if you start turning something down then it's never going to come back again. Mm. And that's not been your experience? No, not at all. So if somebody is it your experience of that happening with a, one particular employer, for want of a better word, or commissioner might be a better word to use? No, like so there's you, been instances where people have said, you know, we really want to do this and we haven't got a very good budget. And, and I will say, well, either I will, I will go away and have a think about whether there is something I can do within that budget, which is nothing to do with what we've discussed so far because that budget is unrealistic, or this is definitely what I want to do. So if there isn't budget for that, why don't we see if there's a way of getting budget for that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the people who are offering kind of poor budgets are in no more... Uh, Kind of, you know, the, the art world isn't full of horrible people trying to force artists to, um, you know, work for nothing. The people in art galleries are also working for nothing. Everybody's kind of in the same bad situation, but we're all complicit, and so we all have to kind of stand together and think, how do you make that better? And so, if there's an instance where there isn't funding, well, what is there something you can do about it? Uh, and ultimately, if there isn't, then maybe you can't do the project, mm. and then that's fine. Mm. But I think, you know, there's there's also various ways in which you can work together to make sure there is budget. And in terms of this motivation to be an artist, you were saying about, you know, perhaps it's about being motivated to put, on occasion, put some of your own resources in to make something happen because you're a freelancer and you're self-employed. There, is, is there something specific, do you think, about being an artist that, that adds to that motivation? It can't just be a... I'm assuming it can't just be a kind of business decision. It's, it's there's something deeper than that. Yeah, I mean, I think you're... I think there's two things. You want your... And actually, maybe one of them is a business decision in the sense of you want to be making the work that you want to make. Um, And and as I said, it hasn't happened very much. And for the most part, I've always generally worked just on a project budget. I'm aware there's been a recent... Uh, a recent piece of work which I've made where I thought actually I'm I'm willing to, and it actually had a very healthy budget so it wasn't it that it was an impoverished project it had, it was a very big project but I just there were certain things where I felt like I I can I want to do a little bit more and so decided to put some money in and part of that's because it's I want to make the work that I want to make and part of that's because it's uh, comes from an artistic integrity to make what I want to make and another part is I'm, I have this amazing opportunity to be doing this extraordinary thing and I'm going to make the most of it and then and part of that I'm sure actually is it could be argued to be more of a sort of business decision uh, but what's important in that situation and I think this is where you can still 
not support a artist having to pay for things situation is that that is reported back on. So when I draw the final budget for that project, I'm listed as a funder and my input is clearly marked. So you're not feeding back to funders saying this is what you get for the money you're putting in. You're saying this is what you get for this, which was the final budget. And so you're making very clear that that's mm-hmm. part of that. That extra um, money is coming from elsewhere, coming from the artist yeah, quite specifically. Yeah. In it. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and so you're not giving... Because I think this is also the problem, is that people kind of do... You can, you, know, you can put money in, and if it's not marked, then people think, oh, you, you can get all of this for this funding, and funding is always looking to get more and more for less and less. Yeah. Um, and in my experience, artists always massively over-deliver on the um, amount of money that you give them anyway, whether, you, whether it's a big budget, as you'd said before, or not. Artists will always put in an extra bit either of their time or their money or whatever, to make, to make the work that they want to make. The integrity of the work is the important thing. Yeah, definitely. And it's, also, it's very hard to check your time, I suppose. So at the beginning of a um, project, I will always calculate things very clearly, really, and just say this is what I would like to be paid per day, therefore this is what this project budget breaks down as in terms of my time. And that, I think, is quite a good way of doing things, because sometimes people will come to you with a project budget and it's fixed, it's not that you can't negotiate your salary. You can't say, well, I personally um, work for this amount, so therefore that's what the budget needs to be. The budget's already there, and you've just got to see what you can do for it. But I think there is that flexibility then. So you can say, OK, well, here's the budget. For that, you will get X amount of my time. Um, and then I will plot that out and think, these are the days that I'm going to work on that project. And what I try to do is allow for the fact that there's always a little bit more, but I try and anticipate that at the beginning, so at the time of there being a little bit more, it's actually not that big a deal. So, And I think there's things that need to be accounted for which are the kind of harder things in that there's a huge amount of admin that comes with any project, and that isn't necessarily a day's work. You can't say, oh, on this day I'm doing that project. It's that it's five minutes every now and then, but those five minutes add up, and over the period of like a one- or two-year project, then actually you have spent several days just adminning that Mm -hmm. and so to make sure that time is covered also Mm -hmm. I was going to come back to that actually you said earlier on that you work full time as an artist what is that work what does that kind of consist of you know in terms of making the work administrating looking Mm -hmm. for new work evaluating old work what's the kind of consistency of that that day or that that period so I should say working full time is also what's maybe worth saying is that that's pro- I probably work more than what might normally be considered full time. Um, maybe not in the art world, but certainly in the world. I'm sure I do have some times when I'm off and being more relaxed, but I quite often will work quite long days, I'd say. So it's very kind of normal to be at the studio at... Um, Maybe like nine, I'd say, generally, I'd come in. And I quite often will stay here till nine. And if I go home, I quite often will then work for another couple of hours in the evening. So it's fairly normal to kind of do a 12-hour, 15-hour day. Mm -hmm. But then, I mean, what I like about being freelance is that you do have the flexibility. So you can kind of have periods where you're totally bonkers and then you can cut that that back. Um, Certainly before shows, I will work seven days a week pretty consistently, like I've had some fairly back-to-back deadlines at the beginning of this year, and in April I had my first day off since January. 
Um, so there's several kind of months will quite often go by where you don't have a single day off. And I, I mean, yeah, working not every day, but I've done a couple of days up to 22 hours a day, which gets a bit ridiculous. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, but then you have the flexibility to then think, right, the next week I'm going to relax and mm-hmm. sort of have some time to recuperate a little bit if you can. It, and then it really, I guess, in relation to your question about what you actually do, it really varies, and it varies depending on where I am in a project. In an ideal world, you'd sort of start at the beginning of a year and you'd be able to look at all of the different things that you might work on and then plot them out nicely, spread out over the year, and that would be much nicer. Um, but unfortunately, it doesn't quite work like that. So you sort of end up with times where you're much more frantic and then other times which are a bit more calmer. Although I think I still have a... A sort of hope in my mind when I look in my diary sort of several months ahead and think, oh, yeah, that might be a bit calmer. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just keep holding on to that and it never, it never is. But at the moment, I think I'm in, a, I'm in a sort of nice couple of weeks in that I have work that needs making and so I'm quite focused on that. And those are the times that I like most where I know that a show's coming up and you've just got to be making the work. And so I get very strict on myself during those times about not doing admin and you know what you're going to make so there's not any there's not much kind of speculative making or or well i mean obviously there's things change as it goes Mm. along obviously Mm. but it's very focused on this particular kind of task or this one particular project yeah and and that becomes easier i think but whereas the times where i mean there is a huge amount of admin and particularly actually around my work because a lot of my work is event-based and so even for final shows there's a huge amount of organizing there's a huge number of people that need to be contacted Mm -hmm. coordinated so it's very admin heavy as a practice as well as allowing that practice to happen in the first place so sometimes that kind of that can feel like blimey just you are just uh adminning basically like huge huge amounts of time um, so I always, I think the times where it feels most enjoyable is where you're making stuff um, and you have to say to people, like, I can't answer that email, actually, like, I just, I, I need to be focused on production. Or if I'm working far away, I find if I'm working on the other side of the world, the admin pressure somehow is alleviated, and I don't know what it is, because like, nothing actually has changed. It's just psychologically, I think you sort of think, no one can get at me, it's fine. <laughs> but I think it's something which... It's a strange thing of working uh, freelancers that you... I mean, I work on maybe something like 10 to 15 projects at the same time, and most of my pieces of work will, or project commissions will be about a year in length, so I will then... Uh, they will overlap, and... I'll work between them and between different locations uh, during any period, but it means that on some days you'll need to be adminning all of those projects on the same day, which is slightly kind of odd thing to do because, although it's actually, like on one level, it's not that many things, but they're kind of big. You're thinking through a lot of, of ideas for a particular project and you have to kind of keep swapping in your brain, sort of between, mm. between those it is, things. It is quite a lot. 10 to 15 projects yeah. is a lot to have on at one um, time. And then people will say to you things like, oh, you know, could, and in uh, commission's mind, if they're just thinking about their project and what you're doing for them, then maybe what they're asking of you is not very much. So you might get several emails that just say, you know, oh, could you just possibly pop me, like, 300 words for this press release or catalogue or something? 
And in itself, it isn't that much. But actually, if all 15 people do that, then that's definitely a day's work. And so if you're in the middle of production, then that's not possible. And generally, I kind of try and get back to people as soon as you can. And But it's also really healthy, I think, to just remember that you don't need to always do that, and it is OK. To, and I think, in a way, you set your own um, expectations that other people have of you of, as to what how much they can ask and what they can expect in terms of turnaround on information. Mm-hmm. And I think email kind of email generates email. Like I could, I could, I could quite easily sit at my computer all day and just respond to email, and I would have plenty enough coming in to just do that and never do anything else. So you have to kind of say yourself, actually, no. Like the things I I do is either if I'm not in the middle of production, but I just think it's kind of a bit or like intense production. If I think it's getting a bit much, then I will just set myself a time frame and say, right, that's my hours in the day when I will do admin, and I'm just not going to look at it. Mm outside of that or I just if it once I'm in kind of crazy production before something then I just will just ignore it I'll scan anything because obviously the stuff that maybe comes in that's like super urgent for the thing that you're working on at that Mm. moment but just to have to say to other projects like I know you're wanting stuff but we're gonna have to you're gonna have to let me manage it and you're gonna have to trust that I've never missed a deadline I've never not delivered on anything but I have to manage my own time Mm. uh, because otherwise it can't all get done Admin is one of, admin, two things I'd say about admin. One, it's, it's always seen as this kind of generic thing when people, when artists, I talk to artists about admin, that it's this kind of generic lump of stuff. But you've talked about it quite in quite detail and quite a lot of the, the different, what it, what it actually means. And also of, artists often say that they really don't want to do admin and they want someone else to do all their admin for you. But it also sounds like it's actually part of your work in terms mm. of doing the events. Um, if you're organising an event, there is admin that you have to do, and it's part of making the work the work as well. It's a bit, and it's a bit, and a bit really. Like I think, for somebody else to do it, they'd have to work extremely closely with me. Like I, I did have somebody work with me, um, supporting me a few years ago. But I could, like, I could put, afford to have somebody for half a day to a day a week, and it just didn't work at all because they were. We, that time was spent catching up and trying to explain what was going on rather than doing the work. So I think for somebody to help me, you'd have to have somebody who just worked with you full-time, mm. constantly, kind of... Because so much of it is actually about what I'm thinking about my work. Um, and when I'm organising events, I need to speak to people and I need to invite them to come in and do something and I need to speak to them very specifically about their concepts and ideas behind the practice, what it is that I'm looking to do, what it is within their work that I'm really interested in the way in which I'm invited them into that situation. And that, to a large extent, requires me personally to do it, really. So in some ways it can be really interesting um, and enjoyable in that I think, like, I always really enjoy writing proposals for projects, um, and that could be considered admin, but actually that's the kind of idea stage, you know, and it's kind of thinking through what it is that you're interested in, why you want to do something, and that's really exciting um, sort of moment. And so in contacting people for events and all the discussions that come through that, that equally can be really a fascinating part of the process and meeting lots of new people, talking over the ideas, what it's going to be, how it's going to work. So there's elements of it which are super, super great and then there's elements of it which are obviously nothing to do with anything conceptual and it's just the fact that someone needs their train booking. And, mm-hmm. um, but then a lot of that I can work with gallery who's commissioning me to pass that on. So... I can have a conversation with somebody, set something up, and then say, right, I'll put you in touch with someone now at the gallery, and they can sort out practical kind of arrangements. 
When you were in the fire station and you had less of a kind of making resource around and you were making this very kind of performance-based work and now you're here and the setup is slightly different, there are some workshop facilities. Do you think the availability of those resources has changed your practice that there's, because it's suddenly possible to make props, as you were talking about mm. them, uh, that that's led to that happening? Or do, you think it's, or, or do you think the work drove you in that direction to look for those resources? Yeah, I think probably that, and that I've been making, making these props for the last couple of, like, couple of years. I started when I was at the fire station, and there is actually there's a shared studio downstairs at the fire station, which is for as a space that anyone in the building can use if you want to do something a bit messy or stinky. And we had a big backyard there also. So there was some stuff that I'd already uh, started making, and in, in a way that had been possible because of the space there. But I think I would have found space. I mean, it was nothing that complicated mm. or needed anything that specific. But for sure, it just makes... It opens up possibilities. I mean, I've not been here uh, long enough, I'd say, yet to sort of think how the space is then changing. What I'm doing um, in the, everything that I've made so far since being here has been conceived prior to being here. But it'd be interesting to see what happens in the, in the coming year. I mean, there's a project of mine, the School for Tourists, which I've been working on for a number of years, but in the last year I've been working on in Switzerland, and this has been very focused around walking, and that's something that I'm really interested in thinking about here and being in an environment with, a, in effect, a garden um, and having a kind of a nice outdoor space which is on site. And obviously in London, there's some, like, it's not that you can't walk in London. Most people walk. Mm. And in fact, Londoners walk more than anyone else because mm. you don't have a car. But that's something that I, kind of, I have in my mind as an awareness of a new type of space, um, sort of green outside space and what that might afford in terms of social spaces and inviting people into that. Um, so that's definitely kind of shifted my thinking and, or just allowing me to think about what, what might be possible and then I suppose the other thing is thinking about how what does the studio space uh, become and what is that and I'm very interested and have been for a long time in thinking about how the studio is potentially something that can be used also as a social space and a space of production as uh, for, dis like for sharing work um, publicly so at the fire station, we had a, an open studio where I produced a performance-based piece of work within within the live-work space and did these various events of supporting different artists and discussion groups. And that's something that I'm really keen to think about and continue here and think about how other people might come and use the space and how this might become a kind of space for discussion. What, so what was the motivation for leaving London originally? Was it really just about the money? No, so there's personal relationships also which have brought me to Cambridge. And, but there, I mean, Cambridge is not so far from London and there, you know, that's something which is totally feasible to sustain between Cambridge and London. But I think to me, when I looked at where can I afford to live in London when I was leaving the fire station and was thinking which bits of London can I afford to live in, I realised that geographically I may be closer to central London by being where I can afford to live in London, but actually time-wise and how far it takes to travel, mm. I'm closer in Cambridge, and this seems crazy then, because I can basically only afford to live in very, very rough areas on the outskirts of London where I'm, like, a huge commute in um, and living somewhere a bit crap. And so I just thought, why would I, live, why would I do that, and why, why, why wouldn't I live somewhere that's a bit nicer, that I feel safe and comfortable, and I'm actually closer to the centre of London? 
that said, I think there's still a... I think, I, mean, I don't know, on one hand, I think artists think differently about where what location means, and I know artists who are, you know, based on the other side of Europe who would still consider themselves to be London-based artists. And I think when you work internationally, what constitutes a base actually becomes something quite fluid. Um, and is it important where, where that base is? Is it important to think of yourself as a London-based artist or a Berlin-based artist? Does it matter? And if so, why? I don't think it matters to me, but I think it probably does matter. And I think there's, and I think there's sort of some deep-seated attitudes, and there's also some funding remits. I think also that feed into this. I think it'd be interesting to see what happens actually from going from being a London-based artist who works internationally, which in many ways completely means I'm I'm nowhere. Mm -hmm. I've kind of ticked the box of yes, you're part of a major international city art scene, um, and you work all over the place. So kind of whatever. Uh, whereas now I tick a box, which is I'm part of a rural arts local. Uh, situation of where, where I'm where I'm from and where I'm based, and actually nothing's changed about where I'm working. Uh, I'm still, you know, my commissions are still international, exactly the same. Um, and yet I, I I come under a different box within a funding remit, for example. Does that impact in how uh, spaces are commissioning and working, and who they're sort of sourcing artists from, and what kind of um, what and how that operates, and that'll be interesting to see how that works. I mean, I know from being networked with lots of artists in very rural positions previously who have just been in those rural locations, that commissioning and finding work can be very tough. Um, and part of that is because of not being part of a network, and part of it is because of not being seen as part of a network. I haven't felt nervous about leaving London, but it's because I've been there for so long and I have a very established network there, and... I'm also, nothing actually has changed either in terms of my time spent as part of that network. Um, as I said, so I'm kind of, it's quicker for me to get into London from here than it was where I was living before. So it's, I actually haven't geographically left either. Uh, it's just my home where I'm sleeping has, has moved. And in a way, what does that, what does that matter? But it, so is there a kind of a validation thing about being a, a, a London-based artist? Is there something about saying that you're a London-based artist that makes you seem like a better artist I think well, this, is, this is where I think you know. maybe it does matter um, because I think people because you do write that on your bio and it is kind of and I don't know what that says and it, in a way it's a bit like where did you go to art school you know and, and I mean I haven't been asked that question for years but I remember when I first graduated that was quite that was a common question that you would get asked where you studied and and you'd say goldsmiths and that was definitely the right answer mm. if you're in London there are a sort of a density of galleries and art spaces and things going on that there aren't perhaps in other places just through the nature of it being a capital city and having so much there and so there's maybe an assumption that you're kind of therefore likely to be more networked and part of that. I mean certainly it was a decision I took when I was deciding where to study. I felt it was really important to go to London. And was that because you're, because you're from London so it was, it was kind of like um, going in your hometown must be different from... Like, I moved to London from Glasgow, so yeah. it, was, it meant something very different and very specific to me, rather than... I've spent a lot of my life not in London. I just I was born there, and then I spent my childhood elsewhere. So there was a move back, like I did my foundation course over in Cheltenham. Um, and then there was a decision on where to go, and I had actually thought about uh, Edinburgh as an option, but I felt at the time I needed to do part of my studies at least. Mm -hmm. 
um, down in London. And it's difficult to say, isn't it? Because I have I don't have the experience of not being in London and what mm. that's what that's like. But for sure, it's been a fantastic city to have been based in and to have such a wide range of organisations doing different things to become involved in. And I mean, I live 100% off public funding, and that's that requires a lot of organisations, you know, to be able to work between. Um, and those organisations are across the country um, and in different places, but I've got into that through being able to work for a lot of places in London. And I guess if you're in a, in a city where there's only a couple of spaces, then you are quite limited in, you know, what work you can get at first because there just isn't going to be that much that much there available to you. So uh, 100% public funding, that's probably actually quite similar to how a lot of artists either do work or would like to work. Can you talk a bit more about that? What are the kind of good or bad things, advantages or disadvantages? Like, I mean, there's a, there's a great perception about public funding that you have to be doing education workshops or you have to be thinking about audiences or diversity or environment or all of these things. Is that your experience of working with public funding? I think those are all things that need to be thought about. I'm sure there are instances and ways you could work where it would be quite difficult to shape particular practices within it. But no, I'd say the, generally there are agendas behind certain forms of funding that it is specifically there to fund particular like work with particular location or with particular audiences. But there's also you know, exhibitions, budgets and galleries are there to commission artwork and, and that will be protected. Um, and the gallery may have a remit to run education programmes around that. And the interest to me is because of the nature of my practice is actually where there's overlaps between those things. So I quite often will work with an education team and an exhibition team. But I think the thing that I most commonly have discussions around is why you're working with people rather than having to work with people. So there's a significant chunk of funding within the arts that does come from an agenda to work, for example, with disadvantaged communities and audiences. So I'm always very interested to rethink those and think why you're doing things, and I certainly don't work in such a way where there's a kind of an invitation to go in as some sort of artist saviour. And you you get this, you get invited to kind of come into a context where an outcome of your project is that you might, like, solve crime or stop bullying in a neighbourhood or make people feel a sense of belonging in an area of regeneration. There's all sorts of kind of, yeah, ridiculous sort of social policy and strategy, which is kind of laid at your feet that you're going to roll out somehow, and most commonly that some uh, community has been identified in a state of lack and you're going to go and remedy it for them. And this is just not the nature of how you meet people or interact with human beings. It's kind of, uh, it's policy speak and, and nothing to do with human relationship. Okay, there may be a project that generally um, may have some kind of mixed funding. So there'll be some funding which is just to make work and doesn't have any kind of social agenda, and there'll be some funding that's attached to the project which has got a specific remit to work with X number of people from X location. And always, really, for me, the work comes first. So it's what what is it that the, the work might be, and then who do you invite into that that brings that person in as an expert? Like, who do you need on that project? And quite often that may be exactly the same people who a funder is wanting to reach. There's no reason why a group of people should be engaged in, in a project or shouldn't be. But I think there's a kind of crucial difference in why someone's being invited in. So, you know, you might have a remit, like maybe some funding thing that says you know, you've really got to work with early years, which may be not 
anything relevant to anything you do but actually if you need a kind of lateral thinker as part of a team then you maybe do need a three-year-old and kind of it's kind of just thinking through like you know who do you, who do you need and why and how, how are you going to bring together a team of people to do something where everybody is wanting to be there is invested in being there and they're there on the basis of their expertise it's a really lovely way of thinking about it that you're building a team of experts in whatever way that they happen to be experts well, everybody, everybody not... kind of knows something about something do you know what I mean so it's kind of you know, on previous projects I've needed to work with people who know a lot about rowing or about dogs or astrophysicists. And it may be, you know, you need to know um, something about a neighbourhood and you need to know about a location and therefore actually people who've lived there for a long time are just really expert in that location. And I think usually, you know, if somebody says to me, oh, you know, we're hoping to be able to work with young people so we're really hoping to work with 16 25 year olds well my response is always well that's great because I want to work with everybody so I'm sure they'll be in there you know and there's no need to see it as a limit it's just a, a, an inclusion so how do you have those kind of conversations though I mean if a funder comes to you and it's like we want to commission you to make a piece of work for early years children from disadvantaged backgrounds how do you begin those conversations because that's quite a specific commission mm. which and through other conversations we've been having earlier today, it sounds like you've, you're able to navigate around or past that to still fulfil what they want to happen, but also fulfil what you want to happen. And is it is it a presentational thing? Is it a way of presenting it to them? No, I think, I mean, firstly, it's just uh, like being able to have an open and honest conversation. And for me, in that instance, my first conversation would be, I'd like to understand what it is that your motivations are and what it is you're really trying to do with the project and to discuss that and it may be that that you know those motivations are not things I particularly agree with or feel comfortable with and it may be that those are things that can change though and that you can have a conversation about and open something up and start to shift a way of thinking about something for sure there are instances where I would say I'm you know thank you but I it's not it's not something that mm. I'm going to want to work on how often do you find yourself walking away from situations like that? Is it, is it something that's becoming more prevalent as there's been an increasing pressure on public funding to deliver particular social outcomes? No, I think... I mean, generally, my experience is that people are very open to having conversations. And I think that's something really important to realise, is that most things are negotiable. And I think, because it's a very common framework that artists get given a contract... And you're a freelancer, there's no reason why you can't give the gallery a contract yourself. But generally we, we have a system which works on the basis that you get given a contract, you get given a total budget, and then you just sign it. And, I mean, yeah, I'd say on, for the most part I will alter a contract. And there's never been any problems about having those conversations, and they're always really fruitful, I think, to discuss together. What made you want to be an artist in the first place? And and is it did it turn out the way you expected it to? Apart from a one about one week when I was twelve, where I thought I might want to be a vet, and then <laughs> someone explained to me that you like need to like science rather than your dog. Um, <laughs> I've always been fairly like I've always just thought about that I would be an artist. There's not been much of a kind of decision, I suppose. I didn't ever think, oh, I'll, I'll decide to be an artist. I mean, in my in my uh, career uh, advice. My career advice session at school uh, got told to be a hairdresser because that's what you got told if you wanted to do something creative. <laughs> and I've had a very supportive family, and I, actually that's been a massive help in that they've always been totally behind the idea of me being an artist. 
And is this what you expect to do? But like, it's... To, in, t- in terms of like working with... Yeah, I don't, I don't know whether I had any kind of ex- expectations of what it would definitely be like. I spent quite a bit of time when I was younger in artist studios. Because of your parents, because they, they knew yeah, artists. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how things got set up. So, like, there was one guy who I used to spend some time with who was a painter, who I think they intentionally got in touch with because I'd said I wanted to do more painting, and so they just got in touch with this guy. I, I don't think they did know. I think they just asked, approached him and asked him if I could go spend time in his studio with him. Um, and then there was a friend of theirs who they did know. He was a close family friend. He was a potter, and so I used to. I learned to throw pots and spent a lot of time. Like, as a teenager, I spent every weekend throwing pots in a pottery studio. And so I sort of spent a bit of time, and that was yeah, painting and pottery. So that was kind of very much hands-on making. But I don't think I necessarily pictured myself doing that. And certainly through art school, I was very ready to leave after my BA. I mean, I really enjoyed it and I had a fantastic time. But I felt like I couldn't make the work I wanted to make in an art school context. I suppose the thing that I didn't expect was how tough it was, I suppose, to make a living. I've always kind of been very clear on, like, my working conditions need to be such that I am paid for what I do, both because I believe in a sector which doesn't abuse free labour, because then you just end up with a very elite and diverse sector, but also out of absolute financial necessity, I've had no option to, you know, to to work for free, so there's not been a choice. But nonetheless, like now having, I mean, I graduated in 2003, and what one can reasonably ask as a day rate has not really shifted in over a decade, Mm. and that's insane. Mm. You know, and I don't think that what I ask is outrageous in the slightest, and I know it's not because I can only just afford to live off it, and sometimes I can't. And yet still, there's a kind of, there's somehow an attitude that you're very lucky to, to be paid something. And I think, I, I mean, I suppose this is something that I think you think about also at this stage in life where there's plenty of people around me who are thinking about family. I'm not thinking about it immediately now, but certainly this will be a question in the next few years. And speaking with other female artists, I know that it will actually be a choice between having a child and become, and staying an artist. Mm. And, that's ho- and that's a horrible that's choice horrible, to have yeah. to make. So when I graduated, I worked on various uh, education projects. And I viewed that as something that kind of sat alongside my practice in a quite complimentary way. Mm-hmm. And, and I earned a reasonable amount of money from doing that. And I actually, just within the education um, sector, there were these ethics and kind of funding agendas that I was finding difficult and wanting to a challenging question and also my practice was becoming such that I was working with huge numbers of people anyway and I could do that within an exhibitions budget rather than necessarily an education one and that was maybe actually a freer space to do that because I was setting my own set of terms for doing that and that was when I started kind of working across those across those departments but there was certainly a moment where I decided like that's what I you know I want to be working on my practice and that will be involved working with education teams and working with lots of people but it I want to come just from practice and that was a very particular decision I took at that time because that involved a drop in my salary and so I was in a more comfortable to position. Move, sorry, to move from education to exhibitions involved a drop in your salary. Yeah yeah and that was a moment of deciding, right, I, I just need to go for it in terms of just making work and see if I can make a living out of just living off my art practice. But it is gonna, 
it is going to involve a drop in my salary and, I, mm-hmm. and, and I'm going to take, take that decision. And at the time, I thought I can manage it. You know, it, financially, it can just about kind of work. Um, but actually, that kind of also... I think I would have found that very difficult, actually, to have followed through on had I not then got the residency at the fire station and had that subsidised okay. rent. It was all fairly fortuitous because I took the decision to stop doing education stuff and just focus on my practice before the fire station. And I was then in really quite financial, difficult situation and was thinking, shit, what am I going to do? Yeah. Yeah. And then applied to the fire station and luckily got it and that really allowed me then to follow through with... with just working on my artwork. So it was that level of support, financial and obviously the, the critical and having this community of artists that allowed you to make that change? Yeah, Or allowed definitely. you to cement that change? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think had I not had that, I don't know what would have happened, you know, because I, I was definitely struggling. It wasn't, oh yes, I've made that shift and that was fine and I can just, I was really finding it tough. Um, and I actually, I came and lived here for three months at Wising before the fire station because I, at that point, I couldn't afford to live in London mm-hmm. for those few months leading up to that. But I knew that I had the, at that point, I then had the fire station coming, and so I was, I, I just, I came here in a residency for three months. But I mean, at one point before the fire station, I, I think actually the alternative that I was thinking of, um, and that was I was going to try if I didn't get the fire station, was to not have a bay, not to have a home and just because I work so much through residences I've been thinking like is it you know really stupid actually that I'm spending money on rent which I can't afford when actually I live on site in locations very regularly and can I back up residences back to back so that I actually am just completely uh, mobile. I do work massively through residences I've done a huge number of them um, and so I do kind of off to different locations, but actually residency doesn't necessarily mean living somewhere, it just means a kind of long-term relationship mm-hmm. with a space. So, yeah, and actually the fire station also facilitated that because it meant that I could afford to do that without becoming homeless mm-hmm. while I was away. And this is the difficulty also, you know, you'll get this with residences where people will say, oh, well, we'll pay for all your costs, you know, you get your accommodation and your travel and all of this covered. And you still need to pay your rent at home so that you have to have that salary because it's not reasonable that you get made homeless through doing a residency. Yeah, so kind of, yeah. multiple um, times a year. That yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's all the time that we have for this programme and I'd like to thank Emma Smith for her time and insights into her career. The Work of Art is brought to you by ArtQuest, a programme of University of the Arts London and Arts Council England, providing everything an artist needs to know. If you've enjoyed this programme, please visit our website at artquest.org.uk to listen to the rest of the series.